Okay, so tonight, making our way through Hebrews. It's uh, longer than the uh, last book, of course, uh, last couple of books. We had Titus and Philemon together, and those were three in one chapter each, so that made four, so there's a lot more tonight. So we won't be able to go real deep into a lot of things tonight, but I do want to hit some highlights uh, because it's such a, a longer book. Um, I want to just hit some highlights of things that, I, that are um, uh, about Hebrews that are uh, really, some of them doctrinal, some of them very practical. So we're going to look uh, tonight, if you will, go ahead with me to chapter 13 and verse 23 and go ahead and mention this as we get started. So in your Bible, depending on uh, who the publisher is and when it was published, um, there are footnotes, uh, endnotes, they call them postscript at the end of most Bibles. You'll see at the end of Paul's letters, it'll say written from Paul, and it'll sometimes give the town, the city, like from jail, or if he was in jail, prison, jail, or whatever. Mine, postscript, okay, under verse 25 of chapter 13. Does anybody have a postscript that says who it was written from or written by? If you do, just let me know and just let me know what the name is, if they give a name on that. I will say that last week mine said, talking about Hebrews. Uh huh. Last week mine said, the Bible of Philemon, mine says, written by, uh, written by, um, by Onesimus. Like at the very bottom right here. Right. Which was weird to me, I thought. But what, what about on Hebrews? Hebrews, I don't have anything. You, you don't have anything in yours, okay. Anybody have anything? Mine says author unknown. Okay. Mine, strangely enough, says it's written to the Hebrews from Italy by Timothy, which I think is, does it? Which I think is kind of odd because look at verse 23. Know ye that our brother Timothy is set at liberty, which would be odd that he would say that about himself like that. Now, most people believe, and I, now I'll go ahead and say, I believe Paul is the author of it. That's, that's my, my view that Paul wrote Hebrews. It's not anything really to argue over. Some say that Barnabas wrote it. But I think Paul did, um, just the style of most of it and the way he ends it in chapter 13. I don't want us to get bogged down in that, but the reason I wanted to say that is because um, it doesn't begin like Paul's letters usually begin. When he writes to a church or to uh, even to Timothy and Titus, it, it you know it puts I Paul you know and he'll put his name at the beginning there, but you don't see that in Hebrews. So, but I believe that Paul wrote Hebrews. That's my view of it. But you know, um, since there's nothing definite said, then you can't really say definitely. But Hebrews um, it mentions uh, Timothy, and in Acts sixteen one Timothy is mentioned uh, is is the first time that Paul. Uh, mentions Timothy and is, uh, is, is in his second missionary journey. And then Philippians 2 and verse 19 says this. I don't want to stay on this a long time. I just wanted to, to mention the, about authorship and, and to let you know also the time frame when this had to be written. 2.19, um, Paul says this to the Philippians, But I trust the Lord Jesus to send Timotheus shortly unto you, that I may also be of good comfort and know your state. And then Hebrews says, know that our brother Timothy is set at liberty with whom if he comes shortly, I will see you. And so um, the way those two verses sound kind of similar, and that makes me think that it very much would have been Paul that wrote it. But these verses here talk about Timothy. So the point I'm trying to make is Hebrews was written sometime after 52 A.D. 
because that would have been about the date when Paul met Timothy in Acts 16, verse 1. And that was on his second missionary journey. But also it had to be written before A.D. 70 because A.D. 70, um, everything, there, there were no, the only other book that was written in, after A.D. 70 was Revelation. That was about the year 90. So what does, that, what does that mean? Well, it had to be written before A.D. 70 because in A.D. 70, um, Rome was sacked by um, um, Titus. Some of the Greeks came in and completely destroyed Rome, including the temple. And the temple is mentioned in Hebrews. So this just kind of gives you a time frame. Uh, I think it kind of makes it interesting whenever you're studying the book of Hebrews, even though we don't know the author, where it gives you an interesting time frame as to when it was written. So um, if Timothy was the author, um, and well, it, whether he was or not, put it this way. Timothy was known by Paul. That's the point I'm trying to make on Timothy. He was known by Paul, but not till Acts 16. So it means it would have to be written sometime in an 18-year period. So that's just an introduction, just to get us started and thinking about that. We spent a lot of time on that. We need to move on. Uh, so the theme to Hebrews, we said every book we're going to have maybe one or two words or a phrase. Jesus is better than, and then fill in the blank. He's better than all of it. We're going to look at a few things today, tonight in our outline that he's, of course, better than all of it, than anything and everything. Thirteen chapters in the book. Um, it's the same length as uh, 2 Corinthians as far as number of chapters. So it's a pretty lengthy book when you compare it to like Ephesians, which is six chapters, and Philippians, which is four chapters. So it's kind of lengthy. Um, but we're going to look at an outline here. Let me see. Yeah, we're going to look at an outline here just to get a, high, uh, a little bit of a, a highlights of the, of the chapters. So this one doesn't, the outline flows pretty easy after you pass chapter 2, but chapter 1, verse 1 to chapter 2, verse 5, it tells us and shows us how Jesus, of course, is better than the angels. Um, as far as his humanity, the Bible says he was made a little lower than the angels, talking about his, you know, having a physical body, but being God, of course, he's above all the angels because he was God and man, uh, describes him as being better than the angels, chapter 1, verse 1 to chapter 2, verse 5. And then pick up in chapter 2, verse 6 to verse 18, he's better, of course, than any sinner, all sinners, anybody. Uh, he's better than all of us, better than anybody else. And um, we may come back and look at some highlights in that chapter in a minute about, um, about sacrifices and so forth, because we'll be talking about those in Hebrews. Chapter 3, Jesus is better than Moses. Moses was, um, um, was the one that God called uh, to, to lead Israel out of bondage. And so Moses was the one uh, as compared there. Let me back up something I meant to mention in the introduction. I got carried away with the dates. So you'll notice the name of the book is Hebrews. It's written specifically to Jews. Now, I believe that many of them that are found in the book of Hebrews are believers but there are also some maybe that weren't, so uh, that read that the letter went to. So it was written to the Hebrews in general, although there is some doctrine, of course, in there for the New Testament church, and there's um, you know a lot in there for the believer. But also he writes to to tell these Hebrews whether they're saved or lost to tell them that look, Jesus came to fulfill all the sacrifices. Once he died on the cross, those are done and over with. And um, anything and everything you can think of about their laws, about their worship, Jesus is better than all of it. 
So notice that it's not written to a church like Paul writes to Ephesus or Romans. It's written to Hebrews. Some of them that read it might have been lost, you know, lost people. A lot of them might have been, uh, but, but a lot of them were believers too. And so the ones that were believers, it was written to encourage them uh, that, you know, this Jesus indeed is your Messiah, your Savior, and He is indeed who He said He was, and He is God in the flesh. Now, let's go back. So Moses, Jesus is better than Moses, chapter 3. Chapter 4, Jesus brings a better rest than the promised land. In chapter 4, at least the first uh, half of it or so, the writer, I believe Paul, so I'll probably slip up and say Paul a lot tonight. So the writer of Hebrews uh, in chapter 4 spends some time talking about the rest that we as believers have in Jesus Christ, the rest we have of salvation, and the rest that we'll one day enjoy in heaven. And he says that's even better than the rest that they had when they got to the promised land. Remember, they'd been wandering in the wilderness, and God fed them uh, with manna. He fed them with quails. He fed them and took care of them. And they, um, they didn't lack for anything. And when they got to the promised land, that was supposed to be a rest for them. But he, he talks about how Jesus is a much better rest than the promised land. Chapter 5 to 7. He spends three chapters here talking about the priesthood from the Old Testament, and then especially talking about Aaron, who was the first high priest. Remember, Moses' brother was Aaron. He had a sister named Miriam and a a brother named Aaron. Aaron was the first high priest um, for Israel because Moses, Aaron, Miriam, they were born from the tribe of Levi, which is the tribe for the priests. And so it talks about the priests in those chapters and that... um, uh, the priests, their, their work, basically their work was never done. Uh, they were constantly, uh, when they were in the tabernacle or later in the temple, um, especially the tabernacle before the temple was built, when they went in there, they never sat down. There wasn't a place in there to sit down. Their work was continuous all the time, whether it was a table of showbread or the, the whole, it, once a year when they went to the Holy of Holies where the Ark of the Covenant was located or back into the holy place where there was a table of showbread, there was a print, um, the, um, the um, um, altar of incense, they never sat down. Their work continued all the time. But it talks about how Jesus, when he finished his work, he sat down forever at the Father's right hand. So Jesus is a better high priest. Chapter 8, it talks about how Jesus brings us a better covenant. They had uh, covenants throughout their history with, um, from uh, the time of Abraham. Uh, and then Moses, there was a covenant of the law. Then they had covenants, uh, you know, covenant of David, uh, King David. So they had covenants throughout their history. And it talks about a new covenant God will make with, uh, with Israel in the, in the millennium. But it talks about how he brings us a much better covenant. Chapters 9 to 10, there are actually two things in chapter 10. But chapters 9 and 10 talk about how Jesus brought a better sacrifice. And included in that in chapter 10, because it talks about those sacrifices, um, it kind of like goes back and forth uh, in chapter 10 on those two, these two ideas. Better sacrifice. But then chapter 10 also talks about how Jesus is better than the Old Testament law. He's better than all of that. They had you know, their laws and regulations for every sacrifice, for every holy day. And Jesus fulfilled all those. He's better than all of that. Then you get to chapter 11. It changes gears from chapter 11 to the end of the book. And becomes a lot more practical. Not that there's not anything practical in the first 10 chapters, but uh, gets a lot more practical at the end of the book as Paul's writing often, as they often uh, did. 
His writings often did. This is the same with Hebrews. Chapter 11, we'll we'll hit some highlights on that in just a little bit, uh, talks about the uh, life of faith or uh, many call that the Faith Hall of Fame because it it lists not every Old Testament saint, but many of the Old Testament saints um, by name and the things they did by faith. Some of them only mentions their name. And then some it mentions in general without giving names, but it's, many call it the Faith Hall of Fame. And that's a good, I think that's a good name for that chapter. We'll look at a little bit of that in a moment when we get some highlights. Chapter 12, verse 1 to 3, it talks about the necessity of chastening in the life of a believer. Uh, God chastens those whom He loves. Now remember, chastening is not the same as punishment. As far as punishment for sin, that punishment was paid on Calvary's cross. When Jesus died on the cross, he took the punishment for our sin. But chastening or chastisement is different. It's God's using chastening in our life. In fact, Sunday we just started looking at uh, some lessons about going through or some messages about going through problems. We talked about Job, and we'll get back to that maybe this Sunday, hopefully, talking about Job again. But um, there's uh, chastening in the life of the believer. God chastens every son that he receives. Um, every, every believer, he chastens us uh, for, for times in our life. Uh, it's to correct us. It's to give us direction in our life and for several reasons. But chapter 12, the first 13 verses talk about that. And on the other side of that, and because of the chastening that we go through sometimes, chapter 12, verse 14 to 29, it gives us an exhortation, an encouragement to keep enduring. Don't give up. Keep going, don't quit. In fact, the first two verses start with that. We'll get to those verses in just a moment. Uh, Start with that very thing about enduring. And then chapter 13, as Paul does in other letters, and that's another reason I think Paul might have written this, he he greets other people. Well, well, actually, he lists, talks about some people in general. Then he greets a a few names before he closes. And we read a while ago about Timothy. So um, we see uh, where he... um, tells the, the Hebrews, remember these others. And, and in fact, he talks about remember those who rule over you, those who teach, uh, teach you the word, uh, remember them. So that's, the, uh, that's kind of the outline pretty much of each, for each chapter of the book of Hebrews. So it kind of divides up in some places, but for the most part, it's uh, chapter by chapter. All right, let's take the scenic route. Ark of the Covenant. You've, um, you've heard studies or, read, or sermons or uh, you know, messages on the on the uh, on the tabernacle before probably I taught a few years back on the tabernacle um, in 2020 I think uh, taught on the tabernacle and we looked at the different pieces of furniture and of course the piece of interest of furniture in the tabernacle that was also later in the temple was the Ark of the Covenant. In fact, uh, if you read through your Bible on the um, chronological the Old and New Testament. Um, today's reading is in Exodus where God gives um, Moses the blueprint, basically, and gives him the instructions for how the tabernacles will be built. And the very first thing he starts with is the Ark of the Covenant. Now, the Ark of the Covenant is way in the Holy of Holies that only the high priest could go in there once, you know, only went in there once a year. But uh, he starts describing this is how you build the Ark of the Covenant. It tells him the wood, and we'll turn to that in just a few minutes, uh, just a moment. He talks about the wood. Um, the gold, everything gives him complete instructions on the Ark of the Covenant. If you go with me to chapter 9 for just a moment of Hebrews, um, we're going to hit some highlights now and um, read um, some verses on some highlights. Chapter 9, 
I wrote verse 4 next to their Ark of the Covenant there. I borrowed that picture. But let's, let's look at verse 4 and 5. Um, actually, back up verse 2. Let's just go from 2 to 5. For there was a tabernacle made, the first wherein was the candlestick and the table and the showbread, which is called the sanctuary, and that is coming into the tabernacle. After the second veil, the tabernacle is called the holiest of all, which had the golden censer, and the Ark of the Covenant, there's a, a, a picture, a likeness there, uh, overlaid roundabout with gold, wherein was the golden pot that had manna, and Aaron's rod that budded, and the tables of the covenant. And over it the cherubims of glory shadowing the mercy seat, which we cannot now speak particularly. So um, we see the, um, see the cherubim there on the top. Remember, cherubims were, a lot of people called them angels, and they were in a sense because they were heavenly beings, but they had... They had these you know, sets of wings on them, and the golden uh, cherubim faced each other. The wings faced each other and, and uh, touched, and it was on the top up there. The top of the Ark of the Covenant is called the mercy seat. So once a year when the high priest would go in, uh, he would sprinkle blood on that one day of the year of the uh, Day of Atonement. He would sprinkle blood on the mercy seat right between the two cherubim. So we see there, you see uh, where it's hollowed out in the picture, those three items. Um, chapter 9, I've got verse 1 to 5 there, but we read those already. But it speaks of, in verse uh, 4, these items that were in, uh, placed eventually into the Ark of the Covenant. It was a golden pot of manna, and Aaron's rod that budded, and the tables of the covenant. So uh, we'll look at references on that in just a minute on the next slide. But the... Um, um, there, there, are some, there are one or two places that have made um, uh, models, full-scale models of the tabernacle, and they made models of each of the pieces of furniture. And so this was from, I can't remember um, the website I got this from, but anyway, this is from one of the models that was made of what it probably looked like. You see it looks like a bowl of cereal or something. That's to represent what it might have looked like, the um, bowl of manna. Uh, he was, we'll look at the verses on that in a minute. And then the two tablets would be, you know, the Ten Commandments. Uh, when, it, when it says the uh, two tables of the covenant, the tablets of the covenant. So let's look at this. It mentions the golden pot of manna. Um, we're going to have to go kind of fast through this. But back over in Exodus chapter 16. Exodus 16. We see in the Old Testament these three items. We're going to look at each of them real quick. And we see how they were told to Moses, you know, put this in the, in the, inside the Ark of the Covenant. 16 of Exodus, verse 33, And Moses said unto Aaron, Take a pot and put an omer full of manna therein. Now in that chapter was when God started feeding the manna. If you read back the verses before, we don't have time to go back, but if you go back and read that, you'll see where God started feeding with manna. And it says there, Full of manna therein, and lay it up, up before the Lord, to be kept for your generations. As the Lord commanded Moses, so Aaron laid it up before the testimony to be kept. And that word testimony there in your Bible probably has a capital T, and that's talking about, that's just another name for the Ark of the Covenant. So he says, take it and put it inside there. So uh, Hebrews mentions that's one of the things found, and that's where it was commanded that that pot was supposed to be put in there and kept. Then if you go over to Numbers, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Numbers chapter 17 and verse 6 through 11. Numbers 17. So when God was, um, 
When, when God was through Moses um, uh, taking the Levites to, uh, to choose who's going to be the high priest, um, who's, who's going to serve as a high priest over all the priests, over the nation as far as the main high priest, who's it going to be? Well, God said, I want these, um, I want each, somebody from uh, each group, from all their princes of the, of the children of Israel, verse 2, there were 12 of them, I want to take 12 rods, basically 12 sticks. Um, back up real quick to this picture, and then we'll get to our verses here. Um, kind of like that there, a branch off a tree, and it was from an almond tree, and he said, I want you to take 12 of those. Um, verse 4 in Hebrews 9 tells us, but pick up at 17, uh, number 17, verse 6. And Moses spake unto the children of Israel, and every one of their princes gave him a rod apiece, for each prince uh, one, according to their father's houses, even twelve rods, and the rod of Aaron was among their rods. And Moses laid up the rods before the Lord in the tabernacle of witness. Now understand, these are branches that have been broken, cut, whatever. They're no longer living. They're not part of that tree anymore. They've been broken or cut off. Um, verse 8, And it came to pass that on the morrow Moses went to the tabernacle of witness, and behold, the rod of Aaron for the house of Levi was budded and brought forth buds, and bloomed blossoms, and yielded almonds. So it goes from bringing forth buds to blossoms that have bloomed completely to bringing forth the fruit of it. To use that word fruit, it's an almond to, to, that would produce from it. And yielded almonds. And Moses brought out all the rods from before the Lord and all the children of Israel, and they looked and took every man his rod. And of course, uh, the next verse talk about, talks about how Aaron's was the one uh, that uh, the uh, budded, bloomed, blossomed, grew um, uh, actual almonds when the thing wasn't even on a tree anymore. God did something miraculous. That is also, by the way, a picture of the resurrection of Christ. Isn't that a great picture? That rod that was dead, it, could, it was of no use other than God says, I want you to take 12 of those. They've been cut or broken off from the tree, and yet uh, Aaron's is the one from the tribe of Levi, that it budded and brought forth almonds. Isn't that an awesome thing? God used that to show them he was to be the high priest. But we also see in that, because of death and life from death, we see a beautiful picture of the resurrection of our Savior. So you have the manna. Jesus said, I'm the bread of life. He feeds us. We see a picture of the resurrection. And then now it talks about in Deuteronomy 10 um, that the uh, God said that the uh, commandments the, on those tables were to be taken and put into the uh, Ark of the Covenant. Deuteronomy chapter 10. I know I'm spending a lot of time here, but when you think about uh, the law and you think about Israel and their history and everything, uh, there's a lot wrapped up literally in the, in the Ark of the Covenant when you think about that. You have all that history. You've got the manna where God provided for them for food. You have the, the Aaron dry that budded that showed who was to be the high priest over them all during the time of the law. And then now you have the Ten Commandments he gave um, Moses for the children of Israel. Remember the first set, he got angry, he broke them, and then God gave him another set of the Ten Commandments. Deuteronomy 10, verse 1. The time, at that time the Lord said unto me, this is talk, Moses talking, Hew thee out two tables of stone like unto the first, and come up unto the mountain, unto me into the mountain, and take thee an ark of wood. And I'll write on the tables the words that were in the first tables, which thou breakest, and shall put them in the ark. And I made an ark of shittim wood and hewed the tables of stone like unto the first and went up into the mountain, having the two tables in my hand. So it's like a, another ark 
it's not uh, at that time it's not the ark, um, but they were taken and placed in in the ark with gold on it. Verse four, and he wrote on the tables according to the first writing the Ten Commandments, which the Lord spake unto you in the mount of the midst of the fire in the day of the assembly. And the Lord gave them unto me. And I turned myself and came down from the mount and put the tables in the ark which I had made. And there they be as the Lord commanded me. So, and then there they are in the uh, ark of the covenant, uh, the one that was covered with gold. And so in chapter 9 there we see uh, how that's mentioned. So uh, uh, when it came to the tabernacle, the temple, the most important piece of furniture in there was the Ark of the Covenant. And so when you study those pieces of furniture, you see how they picture Jesus in some way, but especially especially the Ark of the Covenant. All right, let's go back to Hebrews. And um, this is, um, we're just going to skim through this chapter uh, for now. Chapter 11. At Faith's Hall of Fame that we talked about. Then we're going to back up to chapter 6 and, and go backwards a little bit. But chapter 11 um, starts with this. Now, faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. And it's 40 verses in this chapter, and he highlights, he spends a little more time on some than others, but he highlights um, the great men and women of faith. Um, later on, you see where Rahab is mentioned in here, and you see uh, some that are just like I say mentioned by name. Even King David is only mentioned by name in verse 32. He's, um, it doesn't give a lot about him, but it does mention his name. And Gideon, and then of course even uh, Samson, uh, one that you wouldn't think of, but of course God said that Samson was a man of faith and he's found in verse 32. But when you look at verse 1, the faith is substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. For by it the elders obtained a good report. Now remember, he's writing to Hebrews. So immediately when they heard that word elders, they say, okay, now he's going to talk about, um, he's going to talk about Abraham and, and, um, and Moses. And he did, but it begins with Abel uh, and how Abel offered a more excellent sacrifice, verse 4. And uh, that he brought the sacrifice that was pleasing to God. And then Cain, who, you know, of course we know, you know, Killed his own brother. Cain did not bring the sacrifice pleasing to God, but Abel did. Then he talks about Enoch. And then a key verse there, which we'll look at at the end on our um, verses to memorize. Verse 6, But without faith it is impossible to please him. For he that cometh to God must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. Um, notice he didn't say without faith it's difficult or tough to please God. It's impossible to please God. Without faith, then you go on through and you read about Abraham, uh, some more about Isaac, a little bit about Jacob, Joseph. Then you get into a few verses about Moses. But uh, he talks about how Abraham was a man of faith who um, believed God. Um, when you read back at verse eight, by faith Abraham, when he's called to go out into a place which he should after receive for an inheritance, went out, uh, not knowing whither he went. Um, of course, Noah also is mentioned in verse 7. I didn't mean to skip him, but Abraham is mentioned there. He was a man of faith. Abraham had his faults, like we all have our faults. Abraham made mistakes, like we all made mistakes. He sinned. He disobeyed God, like we do. But Abraham was a man of faith. God simply said to Abraham one day, Abraham, you see all the stars out there? In daytime, you notice all the sand that's on a, on a beach? He says, I'm going to make your descendants, your seed, as numerous as that. Do you believe that? Abraham says, yes. I don't know. Could you? I don't know if I could have done that. Maybe if I knew it was God talking, 
Abraham just simply said, yeah, I believe God. He made a lot of mistakes, but he was a man of faith. God calls him a man of faith, and so he believed God. In fact, over in Romans, it tells us that when he believed God, God gave him his, his very own righteousness to Abraham. So great man of faith. He uh, was human, but he uh, was a great man of faith, uh, even though he made his mistakes. Going back to chapter 6, the Bible tells us something here. I love this verse. Sometimes the negative verses are some of the best ones. You just don't want to pass them just because they're negative. Verse 18 of chapter 6, that by two immutable things, things that can't be argued, things that cannot be disproven, that by two immutable things in which it was impossible for God to lie, we might have strong consolation who have fled for refuge to lay hold upon the hope set before us. It is impossible for God to lie. That's something God cannot do. He'll never do. He will never lie. He would never lie to you and me. So if he tells us in his word that, you know, we have salvation through his son and it's forever, it's forever. God doesn't lie about that. Uh, he will never lie to us. He never lied before and, and he can't. There's some things God cannot do and that's one of them. I'm glad it is. He can't lie. Um, he never will. Chapter, go to skip back uh, over to chapter nine, if you will. We were looking uh, in chapter nine at the Ark of the Covenant a few minutes ago. Uh, but here's something interesting in chapter 9. Here's the Trinity mentioned in one verse. There are several places in the New Testament where you find these. And here's the Trinity in one verse. How much more shall the blood of Christ, that's God the Son, uh, the second person of the Trinity, um, who through the eternal Spirit, that's the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity we call Him, um, the eternal Spirit, the Holy Spirit, Offered himself without spot to God. That would be God the Father. Purge your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. So we see all three of the persons of the Trinity in one verse. That's just a little side note. And if you ever get in discussion, sometimes there are those who say there, you know, there is no Trinity. Jesus is God, uh, the Father. Jesus is the Son. Jesus is the Holy Ghost. But there is, and there are several verses that talk about that. And that's one of them. There's some more uh, in other places, but um, we see the Trinity in one verse. 927. Um, this is a good, at the end, we'll, I'll mention this as a memory verse. It's very short, uh, and as it is appointed unto men once to die, but after this, the judgment. It's a great verse when giving the gospel. If you talk to someone, um, and you know, that all of us are going to die, and uh, we will face God sometime. After this, the judgment. It's a great verse for witnessing to somebody because, you know, the Bible says for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So it's a great verse for that, great verse to be used for that um, and to, to witness to people. But also just, um, and when you study the Bible, is it appointed unto men once to die? Are there any exceptions to that? Yeah, there are. There were some that, that, that were raised from the dead in the Old Testament by Elijah and Elisha, and then Jesus raised some from the dead, but then they died again. And so that verse is really talking about the, the death that you die before you go to judgment, see, to, to the judgment. Then, of course, there will be living Christians at the rapture that will not die. We won't see death uh, if we're living then. I hope we will be. We won't see death. We'll be, you know, we'll be raptured when we're alive. Enoch, that happened to Enoch. Enoch didn't die, but it's appointed to him when he died. So the, in other words, the rule of thumb is, is there, you know, everybody's going to face God. And it's most likely going to be you know, through death after you die. But there are exceptions. There's some that rose from the dead and died later on, and then there are those that will be alive at the rapture 
1 Thessalonians 4.17 says, A dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together and we'll miss out on death. I hope that's, I hope that's us. I hope that's everyone in here. Then chapter 9, verse 28, uh, the writer, if it's Paul, and I think it probably is, uh, he just had to put something in there about Jesus coming back. I love that. Chapter 9, 28. So Christ was once offered to bear the sins of many, and unto them that look for him shall be, he appear the second time without sin unto salvation. So the second time he's going to come back. And then also that's, that's also uh, mentioned in another verse in 1037. Over a little while, and he that shall come will come and will not tarry. That he is coming back. So with everything that he was telling the Hebrews, he, you know, he, he took time to put in there a couple of verses about the fact that the Lord is coming back. He will come back one day. 13.3, this is a, I mentioned that chapter that that, that Paul in that last chapter mentioned some people to think about and to remember. 13.3, remember them that are in bonds as bound with them and them which suffer adversity as being yourselves also in the body. In other words, he says those who are going through persecution. So there in that, in those days, um, this was, you know, during the time, you know, Paul, like I said, he probably wrote it, but it was during the time of Paul's ministry. Persecution was going on at different places at different times. And then even especially, you know, Paul, of course, himself was persecuted to death. He was martyred uh, for his faith. And then there are others, of course, that, that uh, ended up being martyred. In Acts 12, uh, James, the apostle James, uh, the, we call him, well, James, the brother of John, he's, he's martyred. So, Paul says, or the writer said, remember those who are in bonds. And of course, Paul, you know, more than once was uh, in prison for preaching the gospel. Remember them that are in bonds as bound with them, and them also which suffer adversity as being yourselves also in the body. So he talks about those who are, you know, suffering being in, in prison, but then there are some that suffer, maybe not in prison, but they suffer in other ways for the cause of Christ. And, you know, until Jesus comes back, there's going to be suffering all over the world for Jesus. And there are countries that are much less fortunate with their laws than we have. They go through a great, where Christians go through a great deal of suffering. And um, he says, remember them as being in the body. They're part, these believers are part of the body of Christ. And they're going through this suffering, and we need to remember them. 1 Corinthians 12, 27 tells us that if one member suffer, all, we all suffer with it because we're part of the body of Christ and suffering affects everyone in some way. Then he mentions to remember pastors and teachers and so forth. Uh, Hebrews 13 verse 7 and then also skipping down to verse 17. I'll read verse 7. Remember them which have the rule over you who have spoken unto you the word of God whose faith follow considering the end of their conversation. So he says remember those that you know that that God's put in, you know, to, to teach you, to preach to you uh, as pastors or, or teachers in some way. Remember them. They've spoken the word of God, uh, whose faith follow. Paul told, um, Paul told the um, Christians at um, Corinth in, in 1 Corinthians 11, he says, follow me as I follow Christ. So anyone that's following the Lord, living for him, you know, being obedient, you know, that's not teaching, you know, heresy, something like that, we can follow them in the sense that we follow their example. See what he says there? Whose faith follow considering the end of their conversation because they are to be examples. But then here's the other side of that coin for those that are pastors or who teach. Look at verse 17. Obey them that have the rule over you 
and submit yourselves. There's not a period because he's about to explain some things about those who are pastors and so forth. For they watch for your souls. When we had our when we did our study in First uh, Timothy, maybe when we did it in Titus too, uh, the other uh, last week. But when we talked about in First Timothy about pastors, we said one of the words for pastor is also a word overseer is the word bishop that's found in the in the New Testament that Paul uses, that word means an overseer, one who oversees. And that idea is the idea of a shepherd. Uh, That's why another name for a pastor is a shepherd, because he watches over a flock. And so it says there, um, they watch for your souls. Uh, Pastors are to watch for the spiritual welfare of of their people, as that they must give an account. Pastors will give an account of how well they've taken care of their spiritual needs of their flock. Um, and so it's a very serious thing and a calling. It's a very serious accountability for a pastor. And then it says that they may do it with joy and not with grief, for that is unprofitable for you. So, you know, it's a two-sided, um, two-sided coin. Um, don't want to call it a two-edged sword because that means more negative, but it's a um, two-sided coin. There is the responsibility of pastors, and then there's those for whom they're responsible you know, I think the communication needs to be there to, to know that needs are being met. And if they're not being met, that the pastor can help sometimes maybe one-on-one talking, you know, to, to be able to help a little more. So chapter 13, these are some of the people that the writer was talking about to remember. That's what we said in this chapter. All right, let's look at a few verses of tune-up. Uh, we've already looked at one of them, actually, and that's eleven six, where it says, without faith is it impossible to please God. But look over at chapter 6 and verse 10. Chapter 6 and verse 10. Here's a promise. I love this. For God is not unrighteous to forget your work and labor of love, which you have showed toward His name, and that you have ministered to the saints and do minister. So as a body of Christ, we serve God and we, we fellowship and minister to each other, serve God uh, in some way, whether it's teaching or some way that God's given us some gift to serve Him. And we do that to the, for, for the whole body of Christ. We do that for those that we can help and minister to. Uh, maybe even sometimes it may be helping with uh, physical needs like food or something like that. It says, God is not unrighteous to forget your work and labor of love. He's going to remember what you've done, and He's going to reward you richly for it, especially at the judgment seat of Christ. We will see great reward for the things we've done for Him to be a blessing to uh, our brothers and sisters in Christ. And then in chapter 10, verse 24 and 25, now, pastors get kind of a bad rap on these verses because sometimes they are kind of used as a, um, a guilt trip, or can be, if, not, if they're not really looked at and, and read correctly. Hebrews 10, verse 24 and 25. And let us consider one another to provoke unto love and to good works. Usually the word provoke means a bad thing. <laughs> when you provoke somebody, it, makes them, it talks about making them angry. But Paul says provoke in a good way and provoke each other to love and to good works, to serve the Lord together. Verse 25. Not forsaking the assembly of ourselves together, as the manner of some is, but exhorting one another, and so much the more as you see the day approaching. Now, pastors often use this as, you know, and unfortunately sometimes even guilt tripping about being, you know, being church, you need to attend church, and we do. We do need to be there because we're not just going for ourselves, we're going for the rest of the body of Christ uh, meeting together, that local group meeting together. It's not just for us, and of course it's for the Lord first and foremost. But he says, um, not forsaking the assembling as a manner of some is, but exhorting one another. And so much the more as you see the day approaching. 
So the writer of Hebrews, as with Paul's letters, and we'll see uh, in the weeks to come, Peter and John, all of them write saying, you know, the Lord's coming back. He's going to come back. They believed it was going to be very imminent, very soon. And so they were looking for his return any time. So he says, don't, you know, forsake the assembly. Don't quit. Don't drop out. Don't quit. But we need each other. And he says, um, he says, um, uh, be together, worship together, fellowship together, and so much the more as you see the day approaching. So these are three verses for tune-up to apply for, for us as believers um, from the book of Hebrews. Now let's look at um, the fuel-up. Let's see Jesus in Hebrews. There are several in Hebrews. Um, remember, some of Paul's letters didn't have that many references as far as titles or names or whatever for, for Jesus but there's several in Hebrews. In chapter 2, verse 10, uh, we see him called the captain of our salvation. This is their salvation, but it's talking about us as believers. Um, for who came him, for whom are all things, and by whom are all things, and bringing many sons to glory, to make the captain of their salvation perfect through suffering. So he is the captain of our salvation. He's... Uh, He's our commander-in-chief. He is, uh, in, in the book of Ephesians, the Bible tells us in chapter 6, we are, you know, we, we sometimes are, are, well, all the time, probably don't know of it, in spiritual battle, spiritual warfare, he is our captain. We follow him. Then ch chapter 2, in verse 17, um, he's called our merciful and faithful high priest. In fact, he's called our high priest in several places. And you remember in our outline, we talked about... Um, Chapters 5 to 7 talked about the office and the, the importance of a high priest. And Jesus is called our faithful, merciful and faithful high priest. And then in 3.1, he's called the apostle and high priest of our profession. So again, um, our, our profession of faith in Christ, he is our the apostle and high priest. Jesus had his 12 original ones. Judas, of course, betrayed him. And then he was, he was replaced in the book of Acts. And then, of course, Paul was later called to be an apostle. And so Jesus is the apostle, and he's the high priest of our profession. Chapter 4, verse 14 is a great promise for, um, for the believer. Jesus is before, he, until he comes back, I should put it that way, until he comes back, he's seated at the Father's right hand, is our great high priest. That's why we don't need a priest. Uh, we don't need any priests in this day. We have a great high priest, verse 14 of chapter 4. Seeing then that we have a great high priest that is passed in the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our profession. I didn't write verse 15 there, but let's go ahead and read that. For we have not a high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. And so he is our high priest, and it's mentioned also, uh, we saw in chapter 2, verse 17, just a minute ago, and then chapter 7, verse 26, he's called our high priest also. And then in chapter 10, there's one, and then one in chapter 12, and one in chapter 13. Chapter 10, verse 20. By new, 29, excuse me. I knew that didn't look right. Um, How much sore punishment suppose ye be thought worthy, who hath trodden underfoot the Son of God. Um, of course, he's called the Son of God in the Gospel of John. and Well, in all the Gospels, he's called the Son of God. And so Hebrews also um, uses that title for him, the Son of God. Chapter 12, verse 2. He is called the author and finisher of our faith. Um, we'll come back to that verse here in just a moment in, in closing, looking at some, I believe I included that in our verses for memory. 
And then 1320, he's called the great shepherd of the sheep. Um, we saw and talked about, saw where he talked about pastors and watching for us, souls. And then in chapter 13, verse 20, he says, The God of peace that brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the everlasting covenant. So we see about seven there. There are probably more, but there are about seven that I counted uh, titles or names for Jesus in the book of Hebrews. And each of them talk about uh, his life, his ministry, uh, either while he was on earth or now or both. And then home address. These are some uh, great memory verses. Uh, chapter 2, verse 1 is a good one. It's something I need to be reminded of because the older I get, my memory isn't as good as it should be. So chapter 2, verse 1, Therefore we ought to give the more earnest heed to the things which we have heard, lest at any time we should let them slip. Um, if you have the time and if you have the ability to do it, it's always good to write down things, especially notes and things. And uh, if you have a, a notebook or something, when you read through your Bible or study it, um, the things you write down, they will be very valuable to you for two reasons. One is I've noticed if I write something down, um, I have a memory somewhere that that's been written down and somehow that'll click sometimes. Not always, but sometimes. But then if you've written it down, you can go back to it. Um, and so he says we ought to give the more, more earnest heed to the things which you've heard. And writing, those, writing things down is one way to do that. But he says, what he's saying there, actually doctrinally, he's saying the things you've heard about Jesus, you know, don't let those things slip. Uh, they didn't have a Bible like we do now at that point. They didn't have a finished you know, Bible they could sit down and read. So he said the things you've heard from others that have taught you right doctrine and taught you so forth and preached to you, don't let those things slip. Remember those things. Well, you can apply that verse in several ways. And then chapter 4, verse 12 gives us the promise of um, uh, the purpose of Scripture for us. For the Word of God is quick. That means it's living, it's alive, it's powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit and of the joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and the intents of the heart. Uh, the Bible's the only book in the world. You can read a lot of books, some of them last throughout decades and centuries even, and are well-loved to this day. But this is the only book you can read that reads you while, it, while you read it. It says this is a discerner of the thoughts and the intents of the heart. Hebrews 6.19, our verse when we begin our church, um, Hebrews 6.19, which hope we have as an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast, and that which entereth... Um, that within the veil. So a great verse about Jesus being our anchor, our hope and our anchor. And then verse 11 of, or excuse me, verse 6 of chapter 11, we've already looked at, but without faith, it is impossible to please God. That's a great verse to, to memorize. It's not real long, and it's a really good verse for memory. Um, for he that comes to God must believe that he is, that he rewards those that diligently seek him. Then chapter 12, verse 1 and 2, we'll stop with this tonight. And he, he compares the Christian life to running in a race, um, but it wouldn't be like a you know, 50-yard dash race. It's more like a marathon. Wherefore, seeing also we are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which does so easily beset us, and let us run with patience the race that is set before us. And at the end of the race, there's always a you know, Mark are always a finish line, and this is the finish line, verse 2. Looking unto Jesus, who is the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was before him 
uh, set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. So we see the example of our Savior to endure, to keep on, and to run the race, the race and not to quit, and not look, and not to give up. Those verses are are great verses to memorize, longer than some of the others there, but great verses for memory. Any questions or any uh, any comments or anything on on Hebrews tonight? A lot of stuff in there. <clears throat> a lot of a lot of what they call problem verses in there, but we didn't didn't have any time to go into those. It's just too lengthy, and some of them I'm still studying myself anyway. So, but um, there there's a lot in Hebrews. But if you'll, if you'll get in your mind and realize it's written not so much to a local church, although it is written for Christians, this was written to Hebrews. It wasn't written uh, directly to like the local church of that, of that time, the, the, like Paul did with Philippians and Corinthians and all that. So any questions or anything? All right, Lord willing, next week we're probably just going to do James by itself. We will combine some others. Maybe first and second Peter we might combine together, but James we definitely will just go through it in one study, and we we may end it a little early with that one, but um, I'd like to go with it just in one study next week. All right, let's stand and close in prayer, and we'll dismiss. Lord willing, we'll see you Sunday or next week. Thank you, Lord, for the day you blessed us with, and for time in your Word. Uh, so much there that you uh, the the was written to the to the Hebrews uh, that day, and for them to know that Jesus is better than everything. And anything, and we thank you for our Savior and for um, th- for eternal life in Him and the promises that we have in Him. Thank you for uh, His finished work at Calvary's cross and His resurrection. Uh, but Lord, we also thank you that He's right now in heaven. As we've looked at several verses tonight, how He's seated in heaven as our great High Priest, and we can approach our holy God, through His Son, Jesus Christ. And we can, we can bring any need, any petition, any burden um, that we have on our heart and mind for ourselves or for others because we know that our Savior will hear, hear us. And because of what He's endured in this life, He knows and he goes, He's been through much of it. And he knows by experience. I pray that you'll uh, keep us safe as we leave from here tonight. We thank you for salvation in your Son. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, y'all be safe going home tonight.